0: Chapter 21, like any chapter, it's all about context. How important is context? So let's imagine that there's some guy and he doesn't have his shirt on. His face is painted yellow and green and he has a giant green zero on his chest. (laughs) And he's screaming at the top of his lungs. If he's in Autzen Stadium, we're okay with that, right? If he's in the front row right here right now, I'm calling Chad and saying, take him out and he can return when he's painted orange and black. <laughs> context matters. The Bible is driven by context. So you have to keep it in Autzen Stadium if you would. So if you look back at chapters 19 and 20, something's been happening. Jesus triggers something in chapter 19 because he goes in to the temple. And what does he do in the temple? He cleanses it. Right after he cleanses the temple, you come into chapter 20. And immediately the religious folks begin to say, By what authority are you doing what you're doing? They don't say, hey, why'd you cleanse the temple? They knew the temple needed to be cleansed. They just asked him, what gives you the right to cleanse the temple? And from that point on, there's just this interrogation. Why should we pay taxes to this corrupt government? I'm so glad we don't struggle with that issue today. (laughs) The resurrection, they ask him, hey, there's this woman and she gets married and her husband dies. So she marries the brother and he dies and 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 she, marries the brother, and he dies. And she goes to heaven who she married to. Nice answer, everybody. Jesus says that's just a stupid story. That does not happen, right? It's just just this constant interrogation. All right, all right, all right, all right. And then he ends chapter twenty by saying, "Hey, look out! Look out for this group of people that love to be thought they're really religious." They pray these long flowery prayers. They wear this certain religious garb. They do all this outward show, look out for these guys. Because outwardly they have this show, but then Jesus says, they're actually devouring widows' houses. So their pretense and their show, the repercussions of it, are hurting the most vulnerable and weak in society. And Jesus says, it's coming for them. It's coming for those guys. That's the context, all right? So jump into chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. He'd be at the temple right here And he saw a poor widow, huh? We just heard about widows. Put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So what's this story about? Is it about giving? Because you could sure play that, couldn't you? You need to give 100% just like the widow did. She didn't give out of her excess. She gave everything she had, go big or go home. Jesus gave it all for you. You need to give it all for him. Right? We could have an offering right now and I could play Eye of the Tiger and we'd just kill it. And people do that. But is that what this story is about? If you put it in context? No. It'd be silly for Jesus to say that because in the next verse, verse five, he's gonna say the temple that she's giving money to to support is gonna be destroyed. So it'd be kind of dumb for Jesus to say, hey, you guys should give more money to this temple that's going to be destroyed. So that's not the point at all. There's another point. It's back to this, hey, there's these dudes that outwardly have this show, but there is nothing inside. And because of the way that they live, the game that they're playing with God, it is hurting vulnerable people instead of helping them. That's what it's all about. And this whole system, look out, it's going away. Jesus is warning us about something. Playing games with God. Now, maybe our situation is different, but I think sometimes we do the same thing. As parents, we can say this to our kids with our mouths. We can quote Matthew 6, 33, man, seek first the kingdom of God and his Righteousness. God's got to be number one, buddy. God's got to be number one, honey. So we'll say that with our lips, but is it actually true in our lives? I've had two dads in 14 years of Edgewater blame me for the lack of faith in their kids. That's interesting. I said, really? I know you. I get your son 45 minutes twice a year and it's my fault? It's interesting. So we might say that with our lips, but then it's really the way we live. What's number one? Is a ball. Football or a basketball or a soccer ball or baseball. That's what's number one. Yeah, I couldn't make it to church this weekend. Had a tourney. Sorry. What's number one then? And then it's, conversation I have. Hey, my son, man, he graduated from high school and I just can't get him to go to church. He just is not interested in church. Man, I did not raise him that way. Really? Because man, I wouldn't see you for months. It's lip service. Don't play games with God. That's the warning here. Or the house that you think you're building, it'll be destroyed. Be be very, very careful. Hebrews 4.12 just puts it like this. All things are naked and open with him whom we have to deal. You cannot play a game with God. God's not like, wow, man, I, got, I, I read you wrong, Matt. I had no idea. Nope, nope. So Jesus puts the story out there and then he says this, verse five. And while some were speaking of the temple, And how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? Will not be at once. So, the temple, we're talking about how great the temple is. And the temple was the number one thing in Israel, it was it. And for these scribes that Jesus had talked about in chapter 20, who put on their show, this was their house. It was financially their house. It was economically their house. It was the center of religion. It was the center of business. It was the place where they got praise. Man, this is their house. It was Wall Street. It was the White House. It was the cathedral all crushed into one location. And Jesus is saying the games you're playing and how you've been destroying widows' houses, you're going to reap what you sow. This house is gone. The days are coming and it wasn't even finished. It had been worked on for five decades. It, they hadn't even completed it. Before it's completed, Jesus is saying, yeah, it's going to be gone. This would be shocking. So the disciples are like, what? And they asked two questions. Two questions. Number one, when is this going to happen? And number two, what are the signs that this is going to take place? temple's going to be destroyed. Disciples say, when is this going to happen? And how do we see the signs that tell us it's happening? I think Jesus is a really good teacher. So what do you think Jesus will do with these two questions? He's going to answer them. So if you want to know what the rest of this chapter is about, it's Jesus answering the questions that his disciples just asked him. When's the temple gonna be destroyed? And what are the signs that we can tell about when it's gonna come to pass? And Jesus says this, verse nine, something that I have underlined in my Bible. He says, but the end will not be at once. There's gonna be stages to this thing. It's not gonna happen at once, There's stages. So this is a section of scripture that, people call prophecy. And the more I have studied prophecy and I've been into prophecy since 1995. I went through the Jack Van Empey, anybody a Jack Van Empey fan? No way with Rexella? Are you kidding me, man? Oh, I loved him. Jack Van Empey, he'd be like getting all Rexella. Oh man, you gotta Google him. It's epic. That's where I started. Then Hal Lindsey and Chuck Missler. I think I read every book Chuck Missler ever wrote and listened to everything Chuck Missler ever taught. Like I was sold. But the more and more I studied prophecy, the more confusing it became. Like, man, my goodness, really? And where I've landed today is I believe in two major things that govern how I interpret scripture. Scripture. Number one is inaugurated eschatology. What that means is this. King Jesus, 2,000 years ago, began his kingdom. It was inaugurated. And the inauguration of the new kingdom means this. One day the old kingdom will go. So inaugurated eschatology. And then the second thing is, it's this already not yetness of prophecy. What I mean by that is a lot of times in prophecy, the Bible will fulfill a part of that prophecy already, but then there'll be a little part that's not fulfilled. So if you're interested, just compare Luke 4, 19 with Isaiah 61, verse two. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah. He's actually reading the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads two, no, 85% of it and just stops right in the middle of this sentence and doesn't read any more. And he says, this has been fulfilled in your midst. What he reads, what the next part of the prophecy is, is the coming judgment. So Jesus says, I right now am fulfilling the good part of this. The day of the Lord has come. I'm doing that. Stop. In the future... Not yet is coming judgment though, but it hasn't been fulfilled yet. You can compare the first message in the book of Acts where Peter begins to quote from the prophet Joel and he quotes from the prophet Joel. Hey, this is what the prophet Joel said. In the last days, man, my spirit's gonna descend upon all flesh and your sons and daughters are gonna prophesy and there's gonna be visions and dreams and all this stuff. And then he slices that prophecy in half as well. Not quite in half, but already not yes this, of that same prophetic idea. So those are the two things that when I read and when I study, I know somehow those are in play. It's like this, I think in prophecy. So I hike the Pacific Crest Trail, part of it. Um, and I remember this one time we were hiking toward Mount Theolson. And it seemed like my, Mount Theolson was right there. I'm like, yeah, finally, because we're gonna stop at Mount Theolson. We were like 20 miles away from it. Because there's valleys and dips and curves and corners and all this stuff that happened before we got to Mount Thielson. That's prophecy. Oh, it's right there. Well, no, actually there's valleys and there's dips and there's corners that are gonna happen before you ever get to that prophecy, that idea. And so that's the already not yetness. And here's where we as people that love the Bible have to be careful. And it's a phrase I have. Don't color the dinosaur. So we have these archeologists that go out and they dig up these dinosaur bones and they reassemble dinosaurs and they make you know dinosaurs out of them. Can you tell the color of a dinosaur from a bone? No, but what do all dinosaurs have? Like red over here and flame and like all these colors. Well, they don't know that. So what happens is we have some bones in the Bible about prophecy and that's fine, man. Know them, study them, but don't color. Don't add on your own conjectures because what happens is it turns you and me into Harold Camping. Remember him? Took out the billboards all over. The end is coming. My calendar's ending. 2012, repent. There was one right by Burger King on the parkway. That's what it turns us into. So we have to be very, very careful. We get these bad raps. People say, those crazy Christians are at it again. I don't want to ever conject my own opinion, color the bones on prophecy. I just want to say, what does the Bible actually say? And that's it. Okay, so let's see what he has to say. Verse 10. He said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes now, I listen to this really, really, really carefully. And in various places, famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering You, up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your mind, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I'll give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Who is this about? You, who's the you? Big question, is it us? because he's talking to some people right now. He has a real audience that just asked him two questions. When's the temple being destroyed? And what are the signs so that we would know that it's going to be destroyed? And he says, you, 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 you. Who's it about? Who's the you? Anybody in here afraid of being ripped out of your seat right now and drugged into a synagogue and put to death? Really? I'm not, man, that just doesn't happen. But it happened in the book of Acts. The first martyr drugged before the Sanhedrin, the synagogue of Israel and put to death. Who's the you? Because he asked two questions. When's the temple being destroyed? or some signs that we'll know that it's coming. And Jesus says, all this you stuff, hey, you, 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 you. So for sure, for sure, it's the people in the book of Acts because it happened to them. For sure, it's them. But Jesus also says, verse nine, "Then will not be at once. So there are stages to this, right? So prophecy very often is compared to pregnancy. Read Matthew chapter 24. Do you guys know what a Braxton Hicks is? Okay, so when my wife was pregnant with our first, Braxton Hicks's were like, what? You just freak out. You're like, okay, let's get ready. Let's go to the hospital, right? But you realize, no, no, actually, this isn't it yet. It's just a Braxton Hick. So by our fifth child, when we got, when Charity got Braxton Hicks, I was like, you're fine, woman. Come on. (laughs) We know what this is. Come on, this is just another one. I've told my wife, she should write a book, how to raise your first like your fifth. Because you're just so much easier. It's just so much simpler. Like, ah, uh, don't even worry about it. So, Braxton Hicks, get over it. So, this is what Jesus is saying. There's gonna be Braxton Hicks. So he says this. He begins by just saying, "Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom." Is that something new? Ha! Right. The Egyptians rose up, rose up and then the Assyrians destroyed the Egyptians and then the Babylonians destroyed the Assyrians and then the Medo-Persians destroyed the Babylonians and the Greeks came and destroyed the Medo-Persians and the Romans destroyed the, you know, the Greeks and then Hannibal tried to go across from Carthage and destroy. right? This is life, man. Jesus is saying here, life's gonna go on. The kingdom that I am bringing in is gonna be rejected and there's gonna be people that just live like they've always lived. Nation will rise against nation, earthquakes. It's just gonna be like it's always been. Some of it being caused, no doubt, by religious fakes. So, as a believer, how do we respond when nation rise against nation? Verse 9. When you hear of these things, do not be terrified. Verse 14. Settle it, therefore, in your mind, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. What's Jesus saying? When you see nation rise against nation and all this stuff happening, don't freak out. What do Christians do when nation rises against nation? We freak out, don't we? <laughs> oh no! Gulf War One. Ah! Saddam Hussein, he's the Antichrist! Go for two! Ah, here it comes again. Gog and Magog. (laughs) We freak out. We do exactly what Jesus tells us not to do. Hey, this is just going to happen. It's not going to happen at once. There's going to be these cycles. There's going to be these birth pains. Don't freak out. Y2K, ah, freak out. Storing up some gold and some guns because it's coming. Don't freak out. This is what Jesus says. These things are going to happen. Don't freak out. It's just birth pains. It's Braxton Hicks. Don't worry about it. Because the end is so good, right? When, When your wife finally gives birth, it's amazing, right? The process, brutal. There's pain, there's agony, there's tears, there's screaming. But I can remember when I first held Carissa, my firstborn. Man, I forgot all about my pain. It was like nothing. (laughs) Don't be terrified. Why? Because this is the process by which the kingdom is coming. Don't be terrified. Settle it in your mind. Don't freak out. Because he says, verse 13, when this happens, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. What's the best witness when there's catastrophe? Is it to freak out? Is it to complain? Is it to grumble, man? I can't believe how bad the world is. This place is terrible. I'm freaked out, man. I don't know what's gonna happen. Is your neighbor like, bro, what church do you go to? Because I want some of that. I want my heart filled with terror. Can I go there too? No way. The best witness is someone that says, I'm not terrified. <laughs> no way. Listen, when our world runs out of hope and dope, <laughs> right? When the USA can't print money anymore, when it just, they just say, no, you can't print any more money. That's our opportunity to say we have a real king who's bringing in a real kingdom and it's out of this world and you can join with me. There's no better opportunity to share your faith in a catastrophe. Why are you so at peace? Why aren't you freaking out? Because I serve a king whose kingdom cannot be destroyed, whose kingdom is not determined by the economies of this world. That's the kingdom I serve, okay? So what are we supposed to do when that happens? Well, verse 19, it says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. How do you endure? When there's nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom and earthquakes and pestilence and how, this cycle? How do you? How do you endure? Here's the number one way. and there is no better way. I believe in Jesus. Not because it makes my life more comfortable, or because it's cool or countercultural, I didn't believe in Jesus to try to get a girl that was pretty or something. I believe in Jesus because it's true. And there is no other option for me. That's how you endure. There is no other option. But doesn't matter what happens out here. I believe in Jesus because it's true. It's not trying to give me my best life now. Although I think it does. I believe in Jesus because it's true. And there is no other option for me. He is the way, the truth, and the life, period. It's what Peter would say to him in the end of John chapter six, when everybody's leaving Jesus and Jesus says, you guys gonna go too? He goes, no way. You alone have the words of eternal life. You're true. And that's why I'm sticking with you. That's how you endure. Right? So you endure by doing that. Now, part of it is that that you then have some other stuff that helps you. So it might be like this uh, a bunch of years ago, before I bought a hard shell kayak, I would take a soft, inflatable kayak out into the ocean and go fishing. I do not recommend that. Because the fish you catch have these, they're just like porcupines. And they just poke holes in your inflatable Tahiti. And it's no longer an inflatable Tahiti. It's a piece of plastic. So I was going to go out one day and I had some holes from a fish. And the only patch that I could get was from Walmart. And it was like pieces of rubber, which isn't the right stuff. It's like, normally you want like different stuff that almost, it melts into the, into the, like, the vinyl. So I'm like, well, that'll work. So I'm getting ready. And kayaks are Tahiti's are small. So I've got my seat in there. I've got two fishing rods in there. I've got the big thing, bucket thing in the middle to put the fish in so they don't poke holes in my Tahiti in the middle. I've got a tackle box and I had this life jacket. And I'm like, I have never fallen out of this Tahiti. I don't really need this life jacket. I don't know what to do with this life jacket. It's kind of in the way. And I almost left it. In the last mile, I took it. And I go out and that life jacket was such a hassle. The wind blew it out one time. I had to go paddle over and get it. Uh, It was always in the way. I think think one time I hooked it with my line. I mean, it's just, it was a headache. But I was way out and I was pulling up this fish and I look over and I see all these bubbles coming out from my Tahiti because the patches didn't work. You know what I was really glad to have in that moment? My life jacket. But if I hadn't taken my life jacket with me, it would have been too late. There's things that if you don't have them with you, it's too late. And so with Jesus comes all these instructions. If I believe Jesus is true, then I'm gonna also believe that Jesus says is true. And he says this to me, Matt, if you wanna endure, be connected to my body. Ephesians chapter four, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, be connected to my body. Because a disconnected body part dies. And you read the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, and you would see this. The group would be moving. There was always a couple of families that were like, hey, you guys go ahead, man. You're zealous and you're going for it. We're just going to kick back for a while. We'll catch up with you. Got a tourney over in Sinai for the sun. And what happens is a group called the Amalekites would swoop in and take them out because they were disconnected. So I know from the Bible that I need to be connected. I know from the Bible that I need to be in his word, that I need to be praying. I know from the Bible that I need people around me, iron sharpens iron. I know I need to be practicing repentance and humility in my own life. I know I need to have mission because without mission, without the kind of vision, I just perish. It's part of this thing. I know I need to be full of the Holy Spirit, right? Those are life jackets. They're not there to make you comfortable. They're there to save your life. They're to, there to make you endure when things are hard. But if you don't have them with you, when kingdom rises against kingdom and pestilence come and difficulty comes, it's too late too late. So we're involved in these things and practicing them because we know there's going to be this cycle. It might be good right now, but there'll be a kingdom rising against a kingdom, a nation rising against a nation. It's going to come at some point. And so I'm going to be putting into practice those things that make me healthy, the life jackets that I need in my life. right. So now Jesus says, hey, the temple's gone, but even worse, But when you see Jerusalem, now he's answering the questions. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Which people? This people. Right here, AD 32. This people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, which has happened. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. His two questions. When's this going to happen? And what are the signs? Okay, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, yeah, that's time. So guess what? Eighty sixty eight, Rome got their armies, marched down, surrounded Jerusalem. Here's what we know from history. Very few believers died in Jerusalem. Guess why? They read the words of Jesus. Jesus said, when you see an army surrounding Jerusalem, no, it's coming. So guess what all the Christians did? We're out of here. We're fleeing to Judea. We're getting out of here. Hey, this rings a bell. I remember Jesus said this, let's go. The fact that you have believers in AD 68 saying, these are words for us should mean something to us. Like, okay, we should interpret it that way because it actually saved their lives. They got out and said, hey, Jesus, we believe him and what he said is right. We are getting out of this place. And it was brutal in Jerusalem. Josephus says 1 million people died. Tacitus says 500,000 died. I don't know which number is right. A whole bunch of people died. There was cannibalism. It was brutal and the temple was destroyed. God didn't cause this. It was a rejection of the kingdom. We don't want the Prince of Peace. If you don't want peace, you get war. And right in the middle of this, I love how good Jesus is. Just verse 23, oh, for pregnant women. How considerate is our King that his heart is broken because he knows the pain that's gonna happen to women, pregnant women, nursing women. It's why back in chapter 19, when Jesus presents himself as king, says, the kingdom is here and I'm the king. And they reject Jesus. Eventually gonna say, we will not have this man rule over us. Jesus leaves the city, goes up onto the Mount of Olives. He sits there, looks down upon the city of Jerusalem and he weeps and said, oh, Jerusalem, if only you had known that this was your day. Because Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, presenting himself as king, was predicted by Daniel's 70 weeks. You should have known that this was your day. How I want to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't let me. And so instead of peace, now you get war. Instead of the new kingdom, you get nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, pestilence and destruction. But even then, Jesus says, it's only gonna happen over my dead body. What a good king we serve. So, verse 25. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Well, Matt, what about that? That didn't happen back in AD yeah, the temple was destroyed. Yes, Jerusalem was destroyed. Yes, people fleed and were saved because of the words of Jesus, but there weren't signs in the sun and moon. The son of man wasn't coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Okay. So, as quickly as I can do this, there are different ways, broad, overarching ways of interpreting scripture. One of the ways is this, you look to the culture that the letter was written in. So you go back and you study Greco-Roman Jewish culture from the first century. And there's great merit to that. I do that, I love that. So you'd look at, let's say you want to find out what a word means. You would say, well, how did other writers in AD 50 use that same word? And then by that, you figure out, okay, that's what that word means. We're going to then import the culture of AD 50 into scripture. And that's one way. And I think there's merit to it. But there's another way. And the other way to interpret broadly scripture is to say, no, the Bible authors were Bible students. And they were studying the Bible. And they were reading the Bible back then called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. That was the Bible they read. That's the Bible Jesus read. So they would be studying that and they would grab words from the Bible and use them to continue to write the Bible. That is my preference. So I'm trying to figure out what's being said by the Bible. The first place I look is the Bible. Okay, what does the Bible say about this? That the Bible is the best commentary on itself because there's really one author. God's spirit moved on men, possibly a woman Esther, men and women to author scripture on Elizabeth for sure we know that and on Mary the mother of Jesus we know for sure when she wrote what she wrote. So, absolutely one author, Holy Spirit. So when you look at texts like this, you have to ask, did this stuff happen somewhere else? Yeah. Jesus here is absolutely grabbing Isaiah 13 verses 10 and 13 and he's picking them up and he's importing them right into this text. Now, why would he do that? Here's why. Isaiah 13, 10 through 13, is prophesying the destruction of Babylon. What Jesus is saying is this, Jerusalem has become the new Babylon because of how she is treating widows and orphans because of this fake religion that has entered in where it's all show and all lip service and no one actually has transformation of heart because of that. It's a new Babylon and it must be destroyed just like the Babylon in Isaiah 13. What about the son of man coming in a cloud and with power and great glory? Where does that text appear? It's Daniel 7. One of the most incredible texts in the Bible. Daniel 7 is about these four beasts that rise up and they trample the earth. And each beast is an empire. An empire with power and might, but no consideration about humanity or people. Just might is right. We're going to take what we want because we're stronger. Crushing. Until it says the ancient of days rose up and put an end to these empires, said no more. Although a a few are allowed to continue to live on. And then right after that, it says this. Then I saw... One like the Son of Man, coming on the clouds with power and with glory. And unto him was given an everlasting dominion and a kingdom that will not perish. What is Jesus saying? I'm that one. I'm the Daniel 7 one. These empires that have come, this cycle that's coming, it's not going to go on forever. It's going to be put to an end. And I'm the one that's going to put an end to it. I am the son of man, Daniel chapter seven, that puts an end to this monstrous thing, this monstrous cycle. It's me. I'm beginning it. I'm inaugurating it. I'm the start of it. It's me. But all the language in Daniel seven is what's called enthronement language. Meaning this, most Bible people say that is when Jesus ascends from earth after the death, burial and resurrection and he goes up to earth and says, okay, I finished it. I finished that work. And he's enthroned again where he rightfully belongs next to the father. That it's inaugurated. It began 2000 years ago, but those, some of those beasts continue to live on until one day Jesus returns and puts an end to it. If you don't believe me on all this, just read 1 Corinthians 15, 26 through 28, because it talks about this. It talks about Jesus and the work he did and how he has triumphed, but all his enemies have not been defeated. But one day it says, Jesus will defeat all of his enemies and he'll hand the defeated enemies and the new kingdom over to his father and say, it's done. I did it, dad, we're done. But right now, all the enemies are not gone. And it says the last enemy is death. Then one day Jesus will defeat death and that's it. New kingdom has taken over, Old kingdom is gone and Nagarit eschatology finished. Just read that. It's like this. It's almost like the life of King David. David was anointed king when he was how old? 16-ish, right? Did he immediately get the kingdom and defeat all his enemies and take over? No, he was on the run. Saul was trying to kill him. He didn't actually inherit the kingdom until he was 33 just like that. It's the, the dual fulfillment thing, the already not yet part of the Bible. That's all through it. King Jesus, same thing. It inaugurated 2,000 years ago. Right now, we're seeing the movement and the growth and the kingdom expanding. And one day King Jesus will return and finish it and death will be no more. And you and I will stand next to him in glory forever. That's what this text is talking about. And it says, as you see these things take place, Lift up your head because your redemption is drawing near. Today, we are one day closer to the completion of the kingdom. And our heads can be lifted high because we trust King Jesus. One day closer, one day closer. Praise the Lord. So he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree, and you might underline, and all the trees. Look at the fig tree, And all the trees, as soon as they come out of leaf, you see for yourself and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. You should see signs, things happening. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You're gonna see signs. When you see Christmas lights and Christmas decorations go up, what does it mean? Right? Okay, when I was young, we did not put up Christmas decorations until after Thanksgiving, back when America was a great nation. (laughs) Now we have Brown Thursday, like, hey, be thankful. Now go out and shop. It's insanity, right? It's the same idea. Hey, when you start seeing like like a tree putting out leaves, you know, hey, spring's coming. When you see Christmas decorations, hey, this thing is coming. Well, all these things that I'm talking about, the cycles, my work, the kingdom growing, the gospel going out, all these things are telling you, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Lift up your head. And this generation, um, I think this generation means the generation he's talking to. Jerusalem's gonna be destroyed and the temple's going down within the lifespan of the people that are sitting here right now. But Watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So in like two minutes, you've got inaugurated eschatology. King Jesus came 2,000 years ago. It's what we celebrate on Christmas. He began a kingdom. The kingdom has grown. People have been saved. Some of them have gone before us. They're safely in paradise right now. And one day, Jesus will finish the kingdom. Wrap it up, Revelation 19. Take everything that is evil and wicked and wrong and throw it into a place called the lake of fire. And you guys will exist in eternity the way we were designed to. In prophecy, there's almost always an already, this part's been fulfilled and a not yet because there's usually a valley in there somewhere. A turn, something. To so use those things. So then Jesus says, pray that you may have the strength to escape all these things. Don't freak out, right? Pray that you may escape. The people in Jerusalem in AD 68 did escape. Why did they escape? Because they believed the words of Jesus. That's why they escaped. How do you and I escape today? We believe the words of Jesus. And not just give lip service to them because that's what the corrupt religious people were doing. We actually apply them to our lives and make them become what we actually live by. Our new constitution is the words of Jesus. This is what I live by now. So the cycle is gonna be there. Jerusalem, if you would, is a down payment because there's coming another one. The cycle will not finish, Revelation tells us, until Revelation 16 through 19 takes place. There's coming another kingdom that's going to be destroyed. It's going to be radical and crazy. It's going to be a cycle. But you and I aren't to freak out because we trust King Jesus, that he'll return for us in the right time. To me, that's what this chapter is saying. Don't freak out. Trust me. I started this thing and I'll finish what I started. So quick lessons, I'll give as many as I can in three minutes. Number one, when it comes to the end, it's gonna be longer and harder than you can imagine. So be patient. It's like a home remodel, right? What home remodel happens on time? You have to learn to be patient with home remodels. Okay, the new kingdom is a massive home remodel of planet earth, that's what it is. Read Isaiah. The whole structure of earth is gonna be reversed. Oxes, we're gonna eat grass right next to a lion who eats grass. I don't know how that's gonna happen, but that's gonna happen. Kids will play with cobras, right? There's gonna be a massive remodel. It's gonna be longer and harder than you and I can ever imagine. Number two, there's always gonna be verse eight people. See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name and say, the time is at hand. Do not go after them. There's always some person that's telling you and me, hey, I got it figured out, man. Look at my charts, look at my graphs, look at my calculus, I got it figured out. You should just quote Luke 21 verse eight to him and say, I'm not going after you. No way. No one knows. You and I need to quit the planning committee and join the welcoming committee. Jesus, come You're the king and I trust you. Come quickly, come today. No problem, but I'm not gonna try to say exactly when it's gonna happen. Number three, the Bible clearly indicates that it's gonna get worse before it gets better. That world, if you would, has to be crucified before it can be resurrected. So that means this, don't put your hope in it. In November, we're gonna elect a new president. I don't know who that new president will be. It does not matter who that president is. That president is a sinner. They are not King Jesus. And our hope and trust is not to be put into that person. Period. Okay? That's what the Bible says. So what's our hope? Our hope is this. Better things are in store for us. So you and I can have a light grasp on this world. It doesn't have to dominate my heart. Right, I can enjoy it without having to squeeze life out of it because it's not my life. Man, my life is in Christ. And one day I will stand, verse 36 tells me, right next to him in glory. That's my hope, nothing else. I'm standing next to him, all right? That's what the good thing is. So it's like this. If Russell Wilson wins the Super Bowl for the Seattle, Seattle Sox, for the team that he plays for, right? He gets a ring. Who else gets a ring? The third string punter who's never been in a game. Dude, Super Bowl. You might feel like a third string punter. Doesn't matter. You're on team Jesus. And when the kingdom comes, you get a Super Bowl ring. That's our hope, period. Our hope is in Jesus as king. So father this day. We have seen cycles in our own lives. Kingdom rising against kingdom and nation against nation and earthquakes and pestilence. And so easy to be afraid and lose the promised shalom that you say you'll give to us. So may today we settle in our hearts that you are the way, you are the truth and you are our life that our life is hidden in you and it's safe in you. And not a hair of our head will perish because we will stand next to you, our King, in glory. So may we go from here better prepared for the world that we're going to see, for the news that we're going to hear. And may we have settled in our heart that we will not be terrified because we trust you as king. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.